Well, let us now start our satsang for today. As you may remember, we are about to enter into the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita. We are going to see how the energy flows in the school. It is my intention that for this season, this will be the last of the chapters that I comment. Since in the first six chapters, Krishna is making a complete exposition, a complete presentation of the metaphysical basic truths concerning spirituality and karma yoga. The other 12 chapters which follow are addressing more particular issues. So, as I say, this could be very well the last chapter for now, for this season, which we comment. And thus, we start with the first shloka of the chapter number six. The chapter number six was called in original the Yoga of Meditation. The names are somewhat fuzzy in um, Bhagavad Gita, in the Bhagavad Gita. Because sometimes, like the previous chapter was called the yoga of renouncing the fruits of action. And there Krishna spoke about many other things except proper karma yoga. And that is why the names are just orientative, general. Krishna speaks about a lot of things under each headline. So it will be in chapter number 6. In the chapter number 6, Krishna continues directly with what he was saying in the chapter number 5. Usually at the beginning of each chapter, Arjuna asks a question. The chapters are so clipped so that they fit with a new question brought up by Arjuna. But here, Krishna just continues directly from the chapter number 5 where he was describing the conditions of enlightenment. And in the end of the chapter number 5, actually Krishna describes one of the rare techniques. It is also in the chapter 6 that Krishna, unlike in the rest of the Bhagavad Gita, will describe something technical, which is rare, as I said. And therefore he continues in the same trend, why these are made two chapters, you will see as we go through it, the specific of the teachings given by Krishna changes slightly. So Krishna, called in Bhagavad Gita the Blessed Lord, Bhagwan, Krishna said, He who performs his bounden duty, the action that ought to be done, the action which is necessary, Without depending on the fruits of his actions, he is a sannyasin and a yogi, not he who is without fire and without action. This simple statement, this verset, is full of meanings, so we have to take it one by one. Krishna, he says, he who performs the action that ought to be done. The bounden action. This is a concept which is very powerful in spirituality and especially in Indian spirituality in where it is called Dharma. Basically what Krishna says, he who performs the action 
which is his dharma to do the bound and action for most people this already brings up a question because many people say oh swami only if i knew which is the bound and action for me that means people say the first problem is not that i am or i am not ready to perform the dharma the action which is to be done in a christian understanding and okay as well as in judaism christianity islam this bound an action this action which ought to be done can very well be translated of course there are some glitches of meaning but it can very well be translated as the will of god what the hindus and the buddhists call dharma and dharma means the righteousness the order of the universe the way things are supposed to be in a theistic spirituality such as the three mentioned before it becomes the will of god what ought to be done the will of god ought to be done the will of god is the right thing to do and many people would say swami first of all we don't have a clue about what the will of god is therefore what is dharma of course for many people this problem or this rabbit hole if you want is so much deeper because many people would say i'm not even convinced of the existence of a god this idea of a cosmic consciousness which is omnipresent omnipotent is in a certain way alien to me and now you say in spirituality and we've heard it elsewhere i did not invent this that human beings are supposed to do the will of god what is the will of god even religions among themselves don't manage to agree about that even sub denominations of one and the same religion no longer agree upon that there are islamic sects which fight with each other there are christian sects which fight with each other there are jewish sub denominations which fight with each other everybody thinks that they know what the will of god is and of course the will of god is something different from organization to organization not to mean not to mention from religion to religion and that's why this is of course a moot point it's a very delicate point in spirituality and that is why the yogis looking at the madness which rules in the world of religion they have thought you know what is this dharma in buddhism especially they have treated it more like an abstract thing because there is not a personal god that decides in hinduism still there are many theistic forms of hinduism and because of this there is the will of shiva the will of vishnu the will of i don't know who but in buddhism for example it's the will of who because you cannot even say the will of buddha because buddha did not create the universe buddha is just one of the many enlightened beings that historically has appeared in this manifestation and therefore buddha did not create the dharma 
Buddha speaks about the Dharma, but the Dharma existed before Buddha came to the world, and Buddha, as it is shown in Buddhist iconography, just spun the wheel of Dharma. The wheel of Dharma existed before Buddha, Buddha's advent. Buddha just contributed, he, sh he put his shoulder into it, and he gave a new impulse to the wheel of Dharma. Therefore, Dharma, the righteousness, or as George Oksava, the father of macrobiotics, on his original name, Nyoiti Sakurazava, as he defined it, he calls it the order of the universe. Coming from an environment which is powerfully on Manipura Chakra, George Oksava does not call it the will of God, George Oksava calls it justice, the cosmic justice. It's like Manipura Chakra taken to a cosmic level, taken to a divine level, taken to a very deep level of profoundness. And coming back to our story, therefore every culture, every civilization looks, every spirituality looks at this righteousness in its own way. In Buddhism we have an advantage because Buddhism is one of the non-theistic forms, except some forms of Buddhism which re-became theistic, like in Mahayana and Vajrayana Buddhism you often find theistic approaches because they have personal gods, personal personalities of God, facets of God. But coming back to our story in the traditional Buddhism, Dharma is something which is impersonal. If you say the will of God, and if you say that God is alive, then maybe tomorrow the will of God is not what it was today. Because God is a living being. It's true, it's a cosmic living being whose consciousness embraces the universe and whose body is the universe itself. But still, the divine consciousness being alive, being a being, it therefore can change according to its own intrinsical rules, exactly as you can change in some ways, while in your identity you won't change, you'd expect the divine consciousness to be able to do some changes. Somebody does something. And the divine consciousness, or if you prefer, in the Western religious way, God, reacts to what people do. Like, good, good, that was good. God likes it and gives you a blessing. Or, no, no, that's really bad. And God punishes, or at least God doesn't want to see or hear that and is displeased with it. Therefore, we have two different exceptions. The West has created this personal, not only the West, in Hinduism as well, has created this personal image of God, which can give us the impression that the will of God changes now and then. We are making God not a determining factor, but we are making God responding. It's not, it's the human being does something, and that's something which the human being does, can please or displease God, and therefore God responds. 
If you are virtuous, God responds in some way. If you are a vice-ridden individual, God responds in another way. But then it means God does not have a personality because God keeps responding to circumstances. That's not the proper way of looking at it. Although the cosmic consciousness is alive, nevertheless it has to be brought at the level of some cosmic principles. That's why it is more easy for people to understand the Dharma, the will of God, looking at the Asian and especially at the Buddhist version of that, where God is not personal and Dharma is something which is eternal. There exists an order of the universe. There exists a righteousness. There exists a sort of harmony and that harmony does not change. For example, in yoga, where the yogis being pragmatical, they have looked around and they have seen that religions fight upon various things, from starting from food, sex, daily behavior, life, values, things, then the yogis have looked upon it and the most clear expression of dharma in yoga is of course yama and niyama. That's why yama and niyama is very important. People say, Swami, I don't know what the will of God is. And somebody can say, and until you will not be fully enlightened, you won't know. You'll keep guessing. Therefore, what to do until then? If you don't know what the will of God is, but you can know what the Dharma is. What is right? What is justice? What is the order of the universe? And that is expressed in the laws of energy, in the laws of planes and chakras, in the laws of the universe, and of course concerning human life and human behavior, that is expressed in the laws of yama and niyama. What is dharma? Like here Krishna says, he who performs his bounden duty. It's a bit forcing the word, but it's one of the translations. Another translation is, he who performs the action that ought to be done. The right action. And people say, that's precisely my problem. I don't know what the right action is in my case. The right action is yama and niyama. Like the right action is cultivate purity, cultivate contentment, do tapas, practice non-violence, practice truthfulness, practice no... That's the righteousness. That's dharma. It's a, yama and niyama is a sort of dharma for beginners. It's dharma expressed in concrete words. Like the yogis realize that people don't really see what is to be done because they don't have this global vision. For example, in this, in this situation here, Krishna, who is not only an enlightened being, Krishna who is considered to be an avatara, a divine incarnation, a descent, of course Krishna knows what ought to be done. That's why he's talking to Arjuna, because Arjuna is about to do his bounden action, what ought to be done, the Dharma, and Arjuna hesitates because the Dharma is unpleasant for him 
personally. He knows what the Dharma is, or he thinks he knows what the Dharma is, but for him, the Dharma is painful. Either he does this or he does that, both alternatives, it's a lose-lose situation for Arjuna, and he simply doesn't know what to do. This is how the Bhagavad Gita starts. It starts with Arjuna getting completely depressed, getting completely despondent, getting completely discouraged, and he says, I'd better die on the spot. I don't know what to do. And Krishna already spent five chapters, and now he goes in the sixth, and he will go up till 18 chapters, trying to show to Arjuna what his dharma is, and that his dharma is superior to his ego and to his hesitations. And he keeps telling him, Arjuna, do your dharma. Do the dharma. Stop looking up your own belly button and complaining that it's unpleasant. It is unpleasant, but it is the dharma. In a similar way, sometimes following the path of yama and niyama can be unpleasant. And our ego wants to break the yama and niyama. There are so many people in this world who break the elementary rules of morality and ethics. Why? Simply because the morality and ethics is like a prison for the ego. The ego wants to do demonic things, luciferic things, so-called independent things. The, actually, the ego doesn't like the Dharma. Sometimes, incidentally, it happens that a person is very perfectionistic and very rigid, and that person sticks to some principles and says, no, in this situation we are going to tell the truth, even if it costs us our life and so on. That's not virtue. It happens that that person's ego has an interest in telling the truth or practicing I don't know what, like non-theft, and then that person endorses, apparently, dharma, without that person being a religious dharmic person who listens to the will of God. There is a lot of religious hypocrisy in which people preach the will of God simply because it fits their own agenda, it fits their own ego. The real test is when the Dharma doesn't fit your own ego and it is severely inconvenient. Then you can see indeed if there is a degree of surrender of your will to the universal will. Why? Because first of all people do not believe in the will of God. People say, Moses says that the will of God is this. Jesus says that the will of God is this. Muhammad says that the will of God is this. Krishna says that the will of God is this. Everybody says something different. Therefore, there is no will of God. It's just a fantasy which people build up. Yeah, and the Buddha says about the four noble truths and I don't know what other things. And the yogis have yama and niyama. Everybody is on a trip of their own. But what is the Dharma? Do we have a coherent version of it? The truth is that we do not apparently, externally. That is the myth of the Tower of Babel, that people were speaking the same language, spiritually speaking, and then their tongues got mixed up, 
and then total misunderstanding arise, which you can see today in the world of religion so easily. This is what the Hindu tradition calls Sanatana Dharma, that once upon a time there was one Dharma. There were not ten religions. There was just one Dharma. Sanatana Dharma means the eternal Dharma, the original Dharma, the core Dharma. And Hinduism, Buddhism and others are considered derivatives from the Sanatana Dharma. It's no longer the Sanatana Dharma. Sanatana Dharma was practiced in Satya Yuga, in the golden age of humanity, where people had a sort of unified thought. Sometimes religious thinkers in the 20th and 21st century, they think in terms of ecumenism, unitarianism and other terms, like we would like to have a universal ethics, a universal morality, a universal religion. While as long as people are so many and so selfish, and there are so many ulterior motives, this remains just a utopian dream, but while this remains a utopian dream because there are so many religious people who stick to their religious version because it gives them personal advantages or it satisfies sides of their own ego. Nevertheless, there is this utopian, this messianic dream that once upon a time on the planet Earth, there was a low count population of great spirituality which were practicing a universal truth and that it shall be once again. How soon or how late we don't know, but this is echoed by the mantra, by the logo used by the Theosophical House, allegedly borrowed from some Brahmins from Varanasi, which announced the statement, there is no religion higher than truth. Indeed, Sanatana Dharma would be the truth. Like finished with the argumentation, if there exists reincarnation or there doesn't exist reincarnation. There is only one scientific, rational truth about that. Once you get to that truth, that's Sanatana Dharma. It's kind of, it's no more this version or that version or this religious interpretation or that religious interpretation. It's a sort of science of spirituality. Spirituality done in a rational and scientific way, which is the modern way. The modern world has a need and a nostalgia for this. And that is why, for most of you, when you ask, Lucky Arjuna, because although he is so mistrustful and he is in such a terrible situation, nevertheless he has Krishna. Krishna is his friend and he is nearby and Krishna is available and Krishna tells him, Arjuna, stop being confused, this is the Dharma and it has to be done. Many of you would say, ah, if somebody would only come to me and will tell me this is the Dharma. Move and do it. People say that's exactly what I'm missing. But actually Sanatana Dharma is still reflected in spirituality. The words of Jesus are a reflection in a Christian environment 
of the Sanatana Dharma and they represent the Dharma, the way things should be. Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is. That's Dharma. Whatever you do in the direction of acquiring perfection, which can sound unattainable, utopian, like can anybody do that? That's at least the idea which all the Christian saints, men and women followed. They believed that yes, you can reach salvation and perfection. And therefore, every attempt which you do in the direction of that, that is Dharma. That is the action which ought to be done. That is righteousness. That is the will of God. That is justice. That is the order of the universe. That's the way the universe would be in a perfect world. Thus, do not feel lost. Remember that each and every one of you in this room has a conscience. And your conscience does not come out of the blue. It does not come out of nothing. Nothing comes out of nothing. If there is life, that life comes from the cosmic life. If there is intelligence, that comes from the cosmic intelligence. If there is love, that comes from the macrocosmic love. And if there is consciousness or conscience, it's not exactly the same thing, but they can run in parallel, then there does exist a universal consciousness that simply says your consciousness, and your consciousness doesn't mean your ego. Your consciousness means something very, very profound, which is just a silent witness. That consciousness, which is the very bottom of the perception of I am, I am he that I am, I am the I am, this final consciousness, this universal consciousness, this is the same as the divine consciousness. Exactly as your consciousness is a drop of water from the ocean, and then you have the ocean. But a drop of water from the ocean is still H2O. It is an ocean in miniature. It still boils at 100 degrees Celsius. And it, roughly speaking, has all the properties of the ocean. There are some phenomena which appear differently on a drop, such as the superficial tension, the superficial uh, pressure. There are some phenomena which appear on an ocean, and you cannot see them in the drop, such as storms, waves on the surface of the ocean. You do not see waves on the surface of a drop except some microscopic waves which don't propagate with the same speed and with the same laws. So yes, there are differences between you and the cosmic consciousness, but those differences are only differences of scope. They are not differences of quality. They are differences due to the quantity, not due to the quality, which means each and every one of you Inside you, in the moment when you calm yourselves down and detach yourselves and try to be the pure witness, the Atman, the self, 
Each and every one of you has got a divine consciousness. God is in the heart of each and every one of you. My first spiritual teacher, who was a very metaphysical person, very experienced, he said, he used to say, I like Socratic deductions. He loved the Greek culture and the Socratic style very much. And he said, in the Bible, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is inside a man's heart. And he said, then I come and ask the next step. Can God be absent from his own kingdom? No. So if the kingdom of God is in your heart, then God is in your heart as well. The meaning is there because it, you cannot have only the kingdom of God in your heart, but not God. God cannot be absent from his own kingdom. And therefore, basically what we say here is this. Every human being has the divine awareness, has the divine discrimination. And that's why do not hide behind your own finger with hypocrisy and play games saying, I don't know what the Dharma is. You do, because God is in you. Put aside your ego, detach yourselves, go into meditation, and you will know immediately what the right thing is, because you have the divine consciousness inside you. The ultimate guru, the ultimate consciousness is inside your heart, is inside you. It is your own Atman, it is your own Supreme Self. And that is why the idea is very clear. You know what the Dharma is. When people say, I don't know what the right action is, you are not thinking, you are pretending, you are shirking your duty. Sit down and close your eyes and become one with your higher self and you know exactly what the duty is. The duty can be to wait. For example, Paul, the Apostle of Christ, never met Jesus Christ in person. He was one of the fundamentalistic Jews who were hating Christians and persecuting them and allegedly he might have even killed some Christians being a persecutor of Christians. And then one day, when he was going from Jerusalem to Damascus in Syria, to, or Lebanon, whatever, to find out some more, he was chasing some early Christian communities, he got enlightened. He had a moment of enlightenment where Jesus appeared to him in an orb of light, and this man fell down to the ground, and then he was blind for three days, he couldn't see, and he was puzzled, he was flabbergasted, and then he met with the apostles, with the living apostles, with Peter and the others, and he himself became one of the apostles, and he became one of the most fruitful, one of the most devoted, one of the most active of all the apostles. But here is an act which you might not know. Paul met with Peter in spite of the fact that they knew that he was such a bitter persecutor of Christians before his transformation. They accepted him, they forgave him and accepted him. And then Peter told him, the situation is very hot right now. We have a friend somewhere in a city up the coast. Go in that city and live there with our friend. 
in hiding because they are searching for you, they are searching for us, just stay down, lay low, and we will send you word. And Paul, who was freshly enlightened and who was burning with zeal, and he wanted, he wanted to do something to pay for his sins. He felt so guilty. How terrible things I have done until a few days ago. Now I want to redeem myself. Jesus, make me die for you. Jesus, give me some dharma to do. Tell me what the will of God. Like you can imagine, he was full of zeal. He must have been very impatient. And Paul went to the house of this fisherman from this city whose name I forgot. And he waited there patiently for the other apostles to give him a sign. Which would say, okay, now maybe you can come back and we can talk some more. Or let's do something. You know how much Paul waited. And Paul was not a young man anymore. And in those days, people lived much less than today. Paul waited for eight years. Most of you in this room haven't done yoga for eight years. You don't know what it is to have patience of eight years. Like this man was on a spiritual path. And he had a first moment of epiphany. And then he had, and during those eight years, he was weaving fisherman nets. He was doing manual work. He was reduced to a menial, boring job in a fisherman's workshop, weaving nets, and he had in him to be an apostle. He had in him to write the letter to the Corinthians. He had in him to walk across Greece and the Roman Empire and convert them to Christianity. This was a man exploding with an enormous energy. You probably cannot imagine how difficult how deadly it would feel to be stranded. Like he could have any time have thought, those jerks from Jerusalem, they forgot me. Maybe they died. Maybe, maybe somebody killed them. Maybe actually they wound me off. They didn't like me. And they found a diplomatic way of saying, yeah, yeah, go to that city and wait. We'll call you. Don't call us. And something. He could have thought so many things and probably he did. This was a terrible test for that man to spend eight years doing nothing. For him, the Dharma was to do nothing. Sometimes the Dharma is just to do nothing. Sometimes the Dharma is to march for salt or to preach the law like Buddha did. March for salt like Mahatma Gandhi did. That's why Dharma means many things, what ought to be done. I sometimes speak with pupils on the path of yoga, and they say, Swami, what shall I do? And I'm telling them, all the signs are very good. You are in the green. I see only positive sides on you. I, as a teacher, am pleased. Your evolution is going in the right direction. So what should you do? Nothing else than what you do. Keep weaving fishermen nets. Like people are impatient. They think every time they are going to meet with me, I'm going to change all their practice, all their tapas, all their yoga. I'm going to invent a new yoga maybe just for them because their mental monkey got bored and it asks for diversity and for some excitement. I don't have any new yoga. 
For me, it is just to see, is this person sailing at the right angle, in the right direction? Yes, then there is nothing to be done. The only thing I can do is clap you on the shoulder and say, continue. Keep up what you do right now because it's good. But people say, Swami, it's like nothing is happening. It's exactly like when you are like in the middle of the ocean and you don't think you are getting anywhere because you don't see any motion. You can't see that you are moving, but you are moving. <clears throat> and therefore, sometimes people are impatient because they cannot see the light in the end of the tunnel. And that is exactly why you need a guide. Otherwise, you would take a book, you would learn some yoga, you would do yoga for a year or two, and then you will say, I think I have to do some Qigong or some Tai Chi. Why? Because you got discouraged and you have the feeling I'm not getting anywhere. I'm in the middle of the sea and I can't see myself getting anywhere. If you had a teacher, your teacher will tell you, yes, you cannot see, but I can. You are sailing in the right direction. Somewhere ahead of you is the shore which you had dreamt of reaching. And that is why, again and again, Dharma means many things for many people. And this statement is very important. Krishna says, he who performs the Dharma his bounden duty, what ought to be done. The Dharma for Milarepa was just to practice meditation. Milarepa never marched for salt or did a social revolution. And when people asked him, Milarepa, what the heck are you doing up there? You look like a skeleton. Your skin has turned greenish. You look really bad and it's like, what are you doing there? And Milar, come down and get some proper food and share some of your experience. But Milarepa knew he was not a Jedi yet. He was not, he had not reached the level. And therefore Milarepa says, I've killed 35 people at the behest of my mother. I have created a lot of bad karma and so did other people in my family. I have to sit up here and meditate and pray to burn my karma, to save the soul of my mother and of my family. And therefore, I cannot come down. Milarepa knows. For he says, for me, the Dharma is to sit alone on this mountain, in this cave, and do another 10 years of yoga. I'm not yet there yet. I don't feel I have cleansed everything yet. So that's my Dharma. My Dharma is every morning to wake up and start yoga practice again, 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 ad infinitum like a clockwork, like a Chinese drop systematically, non-stop, till I feel that I have fulfilled what I had to fulfill. Thus, the bound duty is not always something external. The Dharma means that sometimes you just have to wait, like Paul, for eight years. I have examples of people that were stranded even more than eight years, without nothing happening in their life, people of great spiritual perspective and people of great spiritual potential, simply God gave them a test, the test of patience. Let's see, if I take my hand off you for 15 years, will you still be mine? Will you still want to come to me? Like I shall make in such a way that for the next 15 years, no spiritual experience will happen to your life. Because I don't want you 
to practice yoga because you have spiritual experiences. Then you want to be paid. What if you practice and nothing special will happen? Will you then lose your love for me? Will you then lose your aspiration? Will you then lose your motivation? Of course, that's a terrible test. Most of you here, if not all of you, would not be prepared for such a test and would probably break almost immediately under the pressure of such a terrible test. This is one of the most terrible tests that you can imagine. To feel like completely forgotten. To feel like completely stagnant. Nothing happens anymore. Sometimes the Dharma is you do nothing. Sometimes the Dharma is you do your daily spiritual practice. Sometimes the Dharma is you have to do a righteous action like Arjuna. Arjuna is simply there at the change of the yugas. Treta Yuga ends and Dvapara Yuga is about to start. And Krishna tells him, we cannot take all this ego into the next Yuga. There has to be a renewal. Exactly like you ate on a table and then the tablecloth is stained and full of crumbs. And somebody says, before we start the new, we, we spend a lot of time with lunch and then suddenly we have to set the table for dinner. Before we start dinner, we have to change the tablecloth. We have to renew the cutlery. We have to put new things on the table. That's exactly what's happening at the change of the yugas. And Krishna knows. And Krishna tells him, Arjuna, this is beyond even me. This is beyond you and I. This is the law of the universe. We are both of us fighting for a better world. The world needs a fresh start. Let's give to the world a fresh start. And yes, it's not pleasant. It contains, it involves that the bad people should go away. But this has to be done. It's exactly like that philosopher says, it takes nothing else for the evil to triumph, that the good people should do nothing. If the good people do nothing, then the evil, which does something, will triumph. And therefore, the good people must act. Dharma, unfortunately, does not allow us to, to be stagnant. We have to do something. And therefore, Krishna often says in this and in the following verses, he says, you cannot stop from action. Stopping from action, you are not a yogi. A yogi is supposed to act. That is why karma yoga is such a necessity. Because if you choose the tantric version about brahmacharya, or if you choose the tantric version concerning aparigraha, that's up to you. But if you choose the tantric version according to action or inaction, that's almost inconceivable. While concerning Aparigraha, people have choice. While concerning Brahmacharya, people have choice. Concerning to act or not to act, people don't really have a choice. They think they might have a choice, but they don't really. Because there the line is clear. You have to act. Compare this with a wonderful parable given by Jesus in the Bible. Where Jesus says there was this man like which is the symbol of God, and he calls for his servants, and 
he's, he gives to them 10 coins, 10 whatever, 10 monetary units to each of them. And he says, come back to me after one year. And one of them buried it, was afraid. He said, what am I going to do with these 10 coins? If I lose one of them, then in the end of the year, the master is going to be very angry. And he simply buried them in a safe place. And another one of them started doing some business with it. Let's call it business. And he got some profit on it. And in the end of the year, they come to the master. And the one who buried the money simply digs them out and says, look, the money which you gave to me is all there. And the master, which is God, gets angry. He's not happy. This man said, what did I do wrong? And the master, God, says, you should have multiplied the gift which I gave to you. That's the law. Multiply the gift. You are not supposed to die the same way you are born. You come with 10 coins in your backpack, you die with 10 coins in your backpack. You have to die with at least 11 coins in your backpack. That's called evolution. And that's the law of the universe. That's Dharma. If you do not evolve, then the cosmic consciousness says, then why did I create a whole universe for you? That you live in that universe and your evolution is zero. You are stagnant. That's not what I want. Therefore, the Dharma is that the good people also should do something. Indeed, that proverb is right. If the good people do nothing, then the evil triumphs, because the evil does something, and it becomes uneven. That's why we cannot have a neutrality. Oh, you know what, in this life I'm not going to touch anything, I'm not going to do anything. Then you are not multiplying the ten coins. And, in the end, your higher self will be dissatisfied with your life and with your evolution. That is why one has to perform this bounden duty, because the bounden duty, the duty which ought to be done, the Dharma, is ultimately the will of God, and it is the reason for which you are born. And remember, there is a general Dharma, which I always tell to people, because I can, and that general dharma is evolve. That's why in Agama we even have it as a logo, as a motto. Choose evolution. Evolution, the word evolution is very important. You have to evolve. So that's the general dharma. Every single one of you in this room or listening to this lecture is there to evolve. If you ask yourself why the heck did God or whoever send me on this planet, the first universally valid answer to this for everybody is to evolve. That's why. You like it or you don't like it, you agree with it or not, you accept it or not, nevertheless the truth is this, you've been sent down here to evolve. And then on top of that, there may exist, there does exist, a personal dharma. Like all of you have to evolve, but some of you are also composing music, some of you are also doing this, some of you are also doing that. Therefore, the personal dharma can be different 
according to your stage in evolution. Some of you are highly evolved, old souls, and then the universe is submitting you to some high-level tests, and you have to prove yourselves at some very special levels, and others are junior souls, younger souls, which are just starting the process of human evolution, and for them the tests are more perfunctory, more childish, more simple, which still are very significant for them at the level where they are in their evolution. That's why the individual dharma is not the same thing with the collective dharma. The collective general dharma is clear. Evolve or else. Evolve. The, if you do not evolve, the universe is going to violate you into evolving. There is no other way. But besides that, for example, Arjuna evolves. And these things made him evolve very much. But Arjuna was a king from the Kshatriya caste from the warrior class. He was a samurai. He was an Indian samurai, more than a samurai. He was the equivalent of a daimyo or of a shogun. He was the kingly, and he had duties. He was groomed for duties. A peasant was not educated. Even if as human beings we can today say that everybody is a child of God and everybody is equal in a way, yes, that's true. But Arjuna, ever since his childhood, had been painstakingly educated for this responsibility of his. And now he was refusing it. And Krishna tells him, Arjuna, don't you realize that you are the man of history? Of course, Arjuna can say, what if it is my ego? What if I am a megalomaniac who thinks I am the man of history and actually I am just doing something to brush my ego, then Krishna would say, no, I can tell you that it's not so. Then, of course, Arjuna can say and would say, who the heck are you? Why should I trust you? And the discussion can go in that direction, and it did go in that direction. But the point is that Arjuna has to fulfill his dharma, his general dharma and his personal dharma. So Krishna again announces and he says, He who performs his dharma without depending on the fruit of his actions. Very important. Which means you can do your dharma, but at the same time you can put a bit of ego in it. If you are ignorant, you are doing your dharma. Somehow your intuition is good, but you are not aware. You are not aware I'm just like a pawn in a big game. You are a selfish, a bit of luciferic, egocentric person that says, yeah, yeah, I'm doing this and I'm very good at it. And somebody can say, yes, it's your dharma. You are born for it. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, I'm, but I'm doing it. I'm, I'm very good. And you assume it. You say, it's me. Am I not good? It would be like Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi would say, how many people can rise a revolution like I can? Am I not cool? How many people have you seen who can tickle a whole nation to stand up in a revolution like that? There are not so many people with this power. This would have been Mahatma Gandhi going as a fiasco. 
as not a karma yogi. Mahatma Gandhi could have done a revolution, but then he would have taken the karma for it. There have been so many warriors and revolutionaries, so many Che Guevara's and I don't know whom, who tried to do some revolution in some way, and they never did it in a detached way, renouncing the fruits of action, consecrating to God. They did it from their own stomach, from their own belly button. They did it saying, ha, right, there should be freedom, and I, I am going to, be, to give freedom to my brothers and sisters. Then, karma yoga is finished. You are fulfilling your dharma, but you are not going towards enlightenment, except in the slow way. You can do your dharma because you are bound to do it anyway and transform that into a yoga which takes you to enlightenment. That's the advantage of karma yoga. That you do what you would do anyway, such as you practice medicine in a hospital, you paint a painting, you compose some music, you do some social work, you cook some food for some orphan children, you make a revolution of some sort like Gandhi, and at the same time you give it to God and you say, the gunas act upon the gunas, I am a witness to this. That's karma yoga. So, Krishna rightly says here, he who performs his bounden duty without depending on the fruits of his actions. That means he who does karma yoga. He found the right thing to do and he does that thing with detachment. Such a person says, Krishna, he is a sannyasi and a yogi. In India in those days, sannyasa and yoga was different. Sannyasa today in India means the sadhu, the orange suit. It means it's a vow, like a monastic vow. It is equivalent to the monks from Christianity and to the lamas from Tibetan Buddhism. It is taking a vow of spirituality. So sannyasa originally, it means renunciation. And it was supposed to be compulsory for every orthodox Hindu person as soon as they reach the age of 48, 50, something. Like first you are a brahmachari, then you are a householder, and then when you finish this and your children have grown up, then you take sannyasa. And it was supposed that every man and every woman, after they did their maya games, studying, growing up, making a family, as soon as they got to be 50 or something like this and they still had some energy, then they should drop the family, tell to their children, I made you human beings, now you are 21 years old, you are grown up, you are married, you started on your path, here is my house and my land, all my wealth, I'm out in the forest to practice meditation. Of course, this utopian thing does not happen anymore today because people are attached. If you did not do yoga when you are 20-something years old, suddenly if somebody tries to make you do yoga when you are 50-something years old, it's more difficult because you are already attached to the television program, you are already attached to gossiping with your friends, you are attached to the bowling alley, you are attached to good food, you are attached to this, you are attached to that, and to cut all those and to go into an ascetic lifestyle is almost impossible. 
as the proverb says, as the English proverb says, it's difficult to teach an old dog a new trick. Old dogs become rigid. And therefore, this old thing didn't work really. This old regulation that people should be so wise and so detached, grow up, educate, get to the point where you make a family, make children whatever, give them, get them to maturity. And once they are there, you step away and start giving the rest of your life to God. You've done enough for the world, do something for your soul, do something for God. It is a very wise thought, but in practice, people suffer from the attachment and they wouldn't do it. So this was called sannyasa originally, that at some point in your life, you give up and you go to do just spiritual practice because you've done enough mundane things. In time, some people started taking sannyasa before they were 50 years old before they had descendants and they grew them up. Some people took sannyasa early. For example, Buddha took sannyasa at the age of 30-something. But Adi Shankaracharya took sannyasa at the age of 16. Like different people would... So sannyasa is simply saying, I lived enough for the worldly things. From now on, I want to consecrate on spiritual things. Sannyasis are not necessarily yogis, and yogis are not necessarily sannyasis. There can be sannyasas that don't practice yoga. You're going to say, what else they practice? I don't know, maybe they do puja in a Hindu temple like Ramakrishna did. Maybe they do something else. Not every spiritual practice belongs to yoga or is called yoga, although we think it may derive from yoga, but literally speaking, it's not yoga. So not everybody that took sannyasa is a yogi and there are many people who do yoga and are still very selfish and mundane and therefore they are not sannyasis. Sannyasa is more a Hindu culture thing and yogi is a little bit of an independent term because yoga, there is Jain yoga, Buddhist yoga, Islamic yoga, Hindu yoga and therefore Yoga is not really pertaining to one of those religious environments. So what I'm saying here, that's why Krishna correctly also says, he who does this karma yoga, he who does his dharma with detachment, he is sannyasi and yogi. It's like both of them. He's a yogi <coughs> because he does karma yoga and he's a sannyasi because you need to have the soul of a sannyasi. Everybody wants to be attached to some fruits of their actions. People do things because they have ulterior motives. And Krishna simply says, if indeed you can give up the fruits of the action, then you are a sannyasi. Because in your heart, in your heart of hearts, you already renounced. You let go. You surrender. You simply say, yes, may God's will be done. I am doing the right thing here, but I am detached from the fruits of the action. I have renounced the fruit of the action. So, Krishna again says, he who performs the Dharma without depending on the fruits of his actions, that one, he is a sannyasi and he is a yogi. You want to be a yogi? That's the way, says Krishna. 
and then he adds just to make it very clear what he meant by this not he who is uh, without fire and without action very interesting he says he who is without fire like sometimes people are going flat they don't want to do anything and then people say wow what a renunciate person you are no there's just a lazy person with no fire Krishna says you must have fire that you want to change the world you want to do something for others you want to live a little bit for other people you want you have fire some people say I don't want to do anything anymore I lost my fire then Krishna says so he says not he who is without fire and consequently without action unfortunately the people that have fire they go into action but they don't go into dharmic action they do often stupid action vice-ridden action sinful action negative action and they definitely are not detached from the fruits of action this is the tragedy there is this is a midline you should have fire you should be inclined to action you should not be lazy your life should not pass without you having done something significant for the others at least plant a tree if you cannot do something else do something but that something should be dharmic it should be according to the will of God to the order of the universe like yama and yama moral and ethical and that something still should be done with detachment you should have the power that although you may be moved by a big urge to act I have to do something I have to do something okay fine do but make sure it's dharma aligned and detach yourself from the fruits of the action then you can use your fire for a higher spirituality in this way you will discover that the fire is not wrong we often I often scold people because they use their fire in stupid ways there are people who have fire and even here in Kopangan they keep doing stupid things and sometimes because they do stupid things they get themselves in trouble they get themselves into accidents they get themselves into all sorts of stupid things that's fire without Dharma it is a Manipura chakra which is not aligned with Maha Manipura chakra of God it is just I have fire and because I have fire I feel like doing things because otherwise I feel I'm getting dead bored and it's like a slow death for me I can understand that urge for action and I can praise it because at least you are not lazy but the next step is if you are full of fire and you are doing action then make sure that that action is yama and niyama it is full of yama and niyama dharmic and that it is done with detachment it is done by consecrating the fruits of action so again this beautiful starting shloka strove says he who performs action that ought to be done without depending on the fruit of action he is a sannyasi and he is a yogi 
not he who is without fire and without activity. Sometimes people can just be lazy and inert. There is no virtue in that. That person is not refraining from anything. That person is just suffering from a great impurity that is laziness. And then Krishna continues. He tells to Arjuna, Do thou, O Arjuna, know yoga to be that which they call sannyasa or renunciation. No one verily becomes a yogi who has not renounced the thoughts. Very beautiful. Two statements here. He simply, Krishna says, what is called sannyasa, that's what yoga is. Krishna makes a bridge. He says sannyasa is yoga and yoga is sannyasa. Because remember, these two are different. There are people who are sannyasis and not doing yoga. There are people who are doing yoga and they were not having the spirit of sannyasa. And Krishna says, it's not possible. You shouldn't separate them. And that's why he says, that which they call sadhyasa, know it to be yoga, O Arjuna. And therefore, he says, that's how you truly renounce. You have to renounce. And then he says to explain, no one becomes a yogi who has not renounced, relinquished the desires, the thoughts, the mind. That's the next level, right? That's what Patanjali calls when he says yoga is the arresting of the movements of the mind. You have to be able to control the mind, stop the mind. Why? Just for the heck of it, let's simply say like this. Show me that you can stop your mind for 30 minutes. For no reason except just to flex your muscle. Show me. Can you? If you can, that's yoga. That's a measure of one's control over the mind. It's a measure of one's yoga. And therefore, he says, no one, that which is called sannyasa, know it to be yoga, O Arjuna, for no one becomes a yogi who has not relinquished the incentive of desire and thoughts. This, if you have desire and thoughts, then you say, me, 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 I do this, I did that. You don't have renunciation. Renunciation is coming from saying, I give up the fruits of the action. And the desire says, but don't you also want this and that? No. Even, and even if I want, I'm going to make an effort and give it all to God. Surrender. Surrender. I have nothing and I don't care that I have nothing. I'm going to surrender anyway. This is the spirit of it. And that is why... Here, Krishna praises very much karma yoga. He says people talk about sannyasa. In the old India, at the time when this was written, people were praising, wow, there are some great men and some great women that took sannyasa and left behind them the world of deceitful games and have directed themselves exclusively towards the divine consciousness towards God's work. Wow! Sannyasins are so praiseworthy. And Krishna says, it is yoga, it is karma yoga, which is the real sannyasa, 
because if you don't do karma yoga it doesn't mean you have renounced the fruits of the action you have to renounce not externally internally in your soul in your desires in your thoughts you have to make the real renunciation and Krishna continues by giving further he will come back to this theme by the way but a little bit further he keeps on setting the standards of it Krishna says for a sage who wishes to attain to yoga action is said to be the means for the same sage who has attained to yoga quiescence calmness peace is said to be the means it's very beautiful it's the same thing but seen from two angles when you are rising to become a yogi and after you fulfilled it and you became a yogi for a sage who wishes to attain to yoga to attain to nirvana to attain to enlightenment to attain to spiritual realization action is said to be the means action is said to be the means for a man of spirit wishing to ascend to the state of yoga action because you have to do meditation you have to do spiritual practice you have to do karma yoga you have to come and attend a yoga class you have to learn yoga technology it's action therefore there is no passivity when you are a disciple when you are a pupil when you are a pupil you have to act because you are climbing up the mountain you are walking the walk and then he says for the man who has ascended already to yoga so the one that has reached that state of consciousness and for him alone calmness it's said to be the means like once you have reached then there is action but that action is not like you are aiming to a goal that action has become he calls it here calmness quiescence peace like then so there are two stages before reaching enlightenment and after reaching full enlightenment before reaching enlightenment there is an uphill road you have to do action without action it's not possible to reach anything but after having reached then calmness is the means what is there to be reached for milarepa milarepa feels that his dharma is to educate to pass on this knowledge because it's a lineage which he got from guru marpa and he has to give it and he knows that tibet will benefit a lot from his experience from the yoga that he did and from his disciples and from the lineage which he starts but this is just not an action anymore it's it, he doesn't call it an action krishna he says then it's calmness it's one thing when you climb on the hill and when you have reached the top of the hill then you can go only down from the top of the hill there is no place to go but down from the top of the hill there is no other top of the hill because the top of the hill wouldn't have been the top and that is why i always tell to people the energy is rising and then it's coming back like a rain of light it rises from earth to heaven says the 
emerald table of Hermes Trismegistus, and then it comes back from the heaven enriched. There is one part of the spiritual experience which most of the spiritual schools describe, and that is climbing up to the state of Samadhi, and then there is another part of the spiritual life which is much more seldom, and very few people get to know about it, which is about bringing that Samadhi into your daily life, bringing that Samadhi into the world, bringing that Samadhi to the eyes open, bringing that Samadhi to uh, externalization. And that is a very beautiful saying here, in which Krishna basically shows that spirituality has two major stages. Again, for a sage who wishes to attain to yoga, action is said to be the means. You struggle uphill. For the same sage who has attained to yoga, quiescence, peace, calmness is said to be the means. Thus, Krishna points to Arjuna that his dharma may be different than his own dharma. Because Krishna says, I am one of those and you are on the other side of the same hill. You and I are not doing exactly the same thing. I am here for another reason than you are here, because I have reached something which you haven't yet reached. Therefore, for Arjuna, it's uphill. For Krishna, it's downhill. And Krishna makes it clear. And then Krishna continues. Let's see maybe one or two more verses tonight. Krishna says, when a man is not attached to the sense objects or to actions, having renounced all thoughts, then he is said to have attained to yoga. That's again an almost impossible utopian standard which defines the state of void, the state of nirvana, the state of shunyata, and it's not forever because afterwards there comes the way downhill. Like for example, Arjuna could say, Krishna, what do you keep babbling about all this? You are sitting here on that horse and you are advising me to do this thing, which obviously means that you think that this thing has to happen, which means you, Krishna, you want this thing. Why the heck do you give me this lecture that people should have no thoughts and no desires when you yourself, Krishna, you say, I am God, and as God, I think that this is the right thing, and I want this thing to happen. How come that God wants something, when actually you are asking me to get to a point where I have no desire and no thought? Isn't that a contradiction? No, because Krishna said before, there is one part of the path which is action, and there is another part of the path which is the aftermath, which is the peace which comes afterwards. That is why the divine does have desires. But first of all, you have to go, it's like you go through a dip. You take a dip. It's like you get baptized. You go into the water, and when you come out, you are a different person. They say you are baptized. It's like a ritual immersion. You have to immerse yourself into nirvikalpa, Samadhi for a while, minimum 30 minutes or so, that's what Ramakrishna gives as a standard, 
and you immerse yourself and then you are ready for the next step. This is why, of course, this standard sounds utopian. And if we apply it to Krishna himself, we say when a man is not attached to the sense objects or to actions, having renounced all desires or thoughts or movements of the mind, then he is said to have attained to yoga. What about you, Krishna? Can we demonstrate that you are not attached to the sense objects? Krishna had a pretty dubious reputation, having had sex with a thousand gopis and being the Don Juan of India and all that is like, Right, you know, Krishna says you have not to be attached to the sense objects, but he's been sexually involved quite a lot. Are we sure that he was not attached to the sense objects? Is that just a hypocrisy or what? And not attached to actions, but here he is on a battlefield instead of sitting in meditation in his hut. He is on a battlefield goading Arjuna to do battle. It's like, what? No, is he attached to action or not? And he has renounced all the thoughts and desires? No, obviously he says this is to be done. This must happen and he is pleading for it very hotly. So that is why this is very difficult to see and to understand. Because Krishna stands in one spot of the process of evolution and Arjuna stands in another spot of the process of evolution. And Krishna describes for him the uphill, the road to the top. And he says, first you have to reach the top for 30 minutes or 3 days or whatever. And then after you have reached the top, you are going to see the world the way I see it. And then you are going to understand what I am saying to you. That yes, I am detached. I am detached from action. I have conquered my thoughts. And now it doesn't mean that I have to be dead. Many people say, if a yogi reaches Nirvikalpa Samadhi, why the heck doesn't he stop breathing forever and go into some clinical death and be gone in his Samadhi for the next 20 years? Like, why does he need to open his eyes again and breathe and come and bother us with his discovery? Maybe we should be left alone to live our lives and those that reach, they reach. And when they reach, they should keep it for themselves and stop buggering other people with their so very important discovery which allegedly they have made. No? Therefore, here we are having a big thing because Krishna first sets a standard. And that standard sounds impossible. You know, you tell it to people and say, wow, when a man, do not be attached to the sense objects. Do not be attached to action. Renounce all thoughts and desires. Then you have reached yoga. And many, many people say, yeah, right, in your dreams. I don't think it's going to happen to me in this lifetime. It sounds so radical. But actually, you have to understand that this is just a step for conquering something. Because you are not supposed to close your eyes in Nirvikalpa Samadhi and never open them again and never do something again and just die experimentally in your meditation. You are supposed to open your eyes afterwards and start coming downhill over the top on the other slope of the hill and bring this with you to the world and to the daily life. But you cannot put the cart in front of the horses. You cannot start doing that before you actually crossed the top of the hill. And that is why in the beginning there is this utopian ideal which for many people it is scary. It is scary because many people say 
I don't know if I really want to live my life like that. But let's make it clear. Krishna says you don't have to live your life like that. You have to do it just for three days. And when you have reached that climax, then everything else is given to you. You are rooted in your higher nature. And then it is even recommended that you open your eyes and you don't sit in, in the void in Shunya without doing anything. It's recommended that this light which you have reached, this top which you have conquered, you should now bring it down into the valley, bring it to the world, or at least bring it to your own body and to your own mind and to your own daily life. In this way people get encouraged because for many people this looks like hopeless and undesirable. Oh, I don't want to live my life like this. I just want to be without thoughts, without desires, detached from the sense organs. From This is like suicidal. It's like I want to go catatonic. I want to go cataleptic. I just want to go and then that's it. I'm not like this. I have a joy of life. I want to experience this and that. And Krishna says it's perfectly possible. But first you have to be rooted into that spiritual experience. Without that spiritual experience it's going to be fake. And that's why it has to be first of all rooted into that. But no, the goal of spiritual life is not to sit with your eyes closed into a catatonic state for the remainder of your life. The purpose of the spiritual life is that after you unearth that treasure, after you reach that top, after you got bathed in that light, you should impregnate the daily life, the mind, the body with it, and you should act. You should change the world. Krishna says it's not the one without fire and without action. Krishna praises those that have fire and action, only that that fire and action have to be done for God. I often, people say, Swami, what if I have so much fire? Become an exorcist. Start chasing out demons. If you are a very conflict-seeking, fiery person who constantly are like this, then maybe you shouldn't stay in contemplative meditation because for you that's boring. But become an exorcist. Become a healer. Become something which requires a lot of action. Become a revolutionary like Mahatma Gandhi. And then if you have fire, you will have plenty of opportunities to exert your fire. Only that you will do it for God. Which means before you exert your fire, please join God's army. And when you become part of God's army, then let me see your fire. Any one of you wants to become a soldier in Agama and show me your fire? Come, we lack hyperactive, wonderful people who want to change the world and make Agama shine. You have energy and you don't know what to do with your energy? The solution is don't go and dance until 5 o'clock in the morning. It's not forbidden. Dance from time to time. Go to a party. We never said no. But even when you dance, you can do it for a spiritual purpose, to go into a trance, to go into a higher state of mind, and there to try to see the truth of your own being, 
the truth of your deeper being. And if you have energy, give it to God. Simply say, I have so much energy, in this life I want to be a soldier of God. I want soldier, not in the meaning of military, although there have been people with big manipura who became samurai, kshatriya, knights, and that's exactly what they did. The knights in the old days, after the foundation of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, the knights were called the Militia Dei in Latin, the Militia of God. Like God needs a militia because they are widows, children, helpless people. They need to be protected from thieves and ruffians and this. So some righteous people who have the clean spirit to bear arms and to have power without abusing that power are needed. So it's okay to be militia, but be the militia of God. Because without that last word, you are just a manipuristic person that does a lot of karma. Therefore, Krishna explains very clearly the spiritual life, the goal of the spiritual life is not to go into passivity or to stay into a trans-catatonic, cataleptic state. It is action. It is fire. But that fire and action must be enlightened by the light of spirit because without it that fire is chaotic and you are just a person that wants to do but doesn't know what to do and does it wrong. Thus, this is very important. So, again, this last shloka, number four, with which we conclude for tonight, he says, only when a man does not cling to the objects of the senses or to actions. There are two of them. Only when he has relinquished all incentive of desire and thought is he said to have ascended to yoga. But ascending to yoga is not the end of the road. It's just a necessary accomplishment. Like people say, you have to become a medical doctor, you have to graduate the medical institute. And people say, gosh, you are learning all that anatomy and all that pharmacology and all that this and all that. Are you really going to use all of it? Because then you become a heart doctor and you use only a very thin slice of what you have learned or this. First, you need to graduate the medical institute. You cannot become a doctor even if you are a nutrition doctor, even if you are a psychiatrist, even if, you cannot be without first graduated the full medical institute. Therefore, it's the same in yoga. You can become one of these actors of God, but first of all, you had to go for a while through the highest spiritual experience so that you get a dip, you get impregnated, by the spirituality and then you can carry it to the world. That's, that probably gives you a better perspective and not thinking that yoga is boring or fanatic or just going into some, oh, you just want to be like Milarepa, stay 40 years. Milarepa stayed 40 years in a cave because he had a very special dharma. He himself, because he killed 35 people plus and he felt that he had to compensate for a lot of karma. And even when he died, he died poisoned, in agony, with martyrdom. 
at his level, that's never a coincidence. It's obvious that Milarepa chose that death, accepted that painful martyr-like death because he wanted all his life to pay for the miserable deeds which he did when he was young and reckless. But that's, so that's why Milarepa had a particularly tough thing because he had remorse. He wanted to repent for his things. But not everybody who does spirituality has to go to such a bitter length because most people's conscience feels at peace much earlier, at a much earlier stage. People do and do, they reach what they have to reach, and they say, now it's time to do something with this because I have reached something and it's time to give it to the world. Thus, I hope this clarification from Krishna changes your perspective on the purposes of the spiritual practice, which are ultimately to have this fire and this action, but it has to be done the right way, because otherwise it's a catastrophe. It is just getting lost into the labyrinth. This being said, let us now remain for a few minutes in silence, with the eyes closed, trying to assimilate, to let this sink in, to assimilate the message from the amazing teachings of Krishna. And after a few minutes of silent introspection, contemplation, we are going to stop the satsang and part for tonight.